Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion, only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall, only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark, without a ray of brightness. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Calne and look at it. Go from there to Great Hamath, and then go down to Gath and Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the evil day and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on your beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. If ten men are left in one house, they too will die. And if a relative who is to burn the bodies comes to carry them out of the house and ask anyone still hiding there, is anyone with you? And he says, no. Then they'll say, hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For the Lord has given the command. And he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. Do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plough there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, did we not take Carnaim by our own strength? For the Lord God Almighty declares... I will stir up a nation against you, O house of Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Lebo Hamath to the valley of the Arabah. Back in the early 80s, prophetic rallies were very popular back in Northern Ireland. And I remember as a young Christian attending some of these prophetic events. There was a, t- a fairly typical format the speaker would get up and wax eloquent on some dispensational truth, showing us how prophecies in Ezekiel or Daniel or Revelation had been or were about to be fulfilled in international events. This was proof, of course, that we were in the very last of the last days, 
and that the next thing to be expected was the rapture, followed by something any sensible person would want to avoid, Daniel's 70th week or the Great Tribulation. The takeaway message was clear. As Christians, we should be thankful that Jesus was coming soon to rescue us from this horrible ordeal. And any non-Christian should urgently repent while there was still time. After all, the prophetic clock was at five minutes to midnight. The clarion call to repentance was firmly based on the idea that those who professed the name of Christ had absolutely nothing to fear from the day of the Lord. Well, I'm not just sure that Amos would have added his amen. Here in chapter 5, he announces the first of two woes. And significantly, it's addressed to those convinced that the day of the Lord held absolutely no threat to them. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord, announces Amos. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. Apparently, like my dispensational friends back in Ireland, this was a momentous event that the audience was actually looking forward to. It was something that they were eagerly anticipating, something that was understood in the most positive light, at least as far as they themselves were concerned. Yet here, Amos disabuses them of this thought. These people had somehow got their theological wires crossed. They had misconstrued this day entirely. This was by no means a day of judgment confined to Israel's pagan neighbors. Now, this event was as ominous for Israel as it was for the nations around them. It was really not something they should be looking forward to. Instead, it was something they should be dreading. A day of darkness, not light. A day of death, not life. A day of punishment, not reward. A day of destruction, not salvation. The reality was going to be very different from what these people imagined. This was not a day of blessed hope. This was a day of inescapable doom. As Amos so graphically puts it there in verse 19, it'll be as though a man fled from a lion, only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on a wall, only to have a snake bite him. It's comical if it wasn't so serious. It's like someone jumping out of a crashing plane, only for the parachute not to open. And when the backup does engage and they land safely on terra firma, they're crushed by an oncoming freight train. It's like someone jumping off the the deck of a a sinking ship, only to find that their life vest doesn't inflate. And when they finally reach the safety of the nearest dinghy, they get mauled by the jaws of a shark. There's simply no escaping their fate. That's the point of this scenario that Amos paints for us here. This is not an event that these people should be looking forward to. For them, it will be a very dark day indeed. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? Obviously, this would have come as a great surprise, a great shock to these people. After all, they assumed that they were doing okay spiritually. And did that every confidence that God was as pleased with their devotional activities as they themselves were? Didn't they engage regularly in worship services? Of course they did. These were not the kind who gave up meeting together as somewhere in the habit of doing. Didn't they bring God their offerings? Of course they did. 
with no expense spared. Burnt offerings, grain offerings, fellowship offerings, and all this didn't come cheap. Didn't they sing their triumphalist songs and raise the roof with their praise band? Yes, they did. But none of this evoked the divine response that they had imagined. Verse 21, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'll not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I'll not listen to the music of your harps. Your worship services, they don't impress me much. Nor does your sacrificial giving. Your songs and your music are just giving me a sore head. Just imagine if God said that to us. Wouldn't it be awful? Wouldn't it be terrible? Here we are engaging in all this stuff, believing that we're genuinely worshipping and serving God, and it turns out that nothing could be further from the truth. It's unacceptable. Indeed, it's tedious. It's offensive. It's a meaningless cacophony of noise. It's simply not the kind of worship that God wants from us. He wants more than the praise of our lips. God wants lives that conform to his will. As Amos puts it there in verse 24, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. God demands more than a, a constant stream of noise that we might call worship. God demands to see a stream of justice, a river of righteousness flowing abundantly in our lives. In the original setting, this would mean putting an end to the social abuse that was going on, ensuring that the weak weren't trampled on, but treated fairly in the courts. In our context, it means offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. It means not being conformed to the pattern of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. This, Paul tells us, is the kind of true and proper worship that God expects that pleases him, lives lived in the light of his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, that's where Amos' audience got us so so wrong. They assumed that they could substitute religious service for genuine obedience. And so they ended up offering God an adulterated form of worship that was totally unacceptable. That seems to be the main point in verses 25 to 27, however we understand the details The rhetorical question in verse 25 is admittedly something of a puzzle. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? Well, the answer is not quite so straightforward as we might first assume. It's equally unclear if Amos is comparing Israel to the wilderness generation or drawing some kind of negative contrast between the present people and the wilderness generation. But whatever we make of this allusion to the past, what is clear is this. Israel's present form of sacrificial worship is totally unacceptable. Amos accuses them of carrying around the astral deities which they had made for themselves. He literally refers to these rival deities in verse 26 as Sakoth, your king, Kaiwan, your idols, your star gods. Both are familiar in the ancient Near East. But as far as Amos is concerned, there are man-made novelties akin to Israel's golden calf, or closer to home to the two golden calves that Jeroboam I had erected in Israel, one in Dan, and the other, guess where, at Bethel. 
These so-called gods had no place in the worship of the Lord. And thus Israel's worship for all its sincerity was bogus. Today we're familiar with fake news. Well, this is fake religion. Bogus religion. Israel's God, remember, was the one who had made the stars, verse 8. How insulting that his people should associate him, the God of heavenly armies, with these so-called star gods, these man-made idols. Yes, Israel's fate was richly deserved. They'd end up in exile beyond Damascus, that is somewhere in northern Mesopotamia, the domain of these so-called gods they'd chosen to worship. As Alec Matir puts it so well, the gods of Assyria occupied their hearts long before the armies of Assyria occupied their streets. Now perhaps we're tempted to conclude, well, these people got precisely what their sins deserved. They had deluded, they had corrupted the pure worship of God, they had mixed in all kinds of pagan idolatry, but you and I, we're not guilty of that. That's not us. Really? Let's not kid ourselves. Idolatry can assume much more subtle forms. Greed. Covetousness. Sexual lust. Impurity. The list could go on and on and on. Can any of us really claim to be without such sin? Such a claim would be delusional. Let's not think for one moment that our worship of God is any more pure or less adulterated. Make no mistake about it, we are just as deserving of God's wrath as were these ancient Israelites. Unless any of us is still tempted to believe that our situation is not quite as serious as these Israelite idolaters, have a look at what Amos does next. In the second woe he announces here, he encompasses the southern state as well. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. In one of his occasional sideways glances, Amos makes it clear that his warnings are equally pertinent for Judah, the southern state. Those who worshipped at Jerusalem, those whose religion, if you like, was a lot more kosher, those whose adultery, at least at this stage, was not nearly so brazen or obvious. Yet like their northern neighbours, they too were displaying an alarming measure of spiritual complacency. Both nations were assuming that they were immune from judgment and disaster. Such complacency, it appears, was fueled by two things, political success and material prosperity. Uh, Verse 2 of chapter 6 is admittedly cryptic, and we can't be certain if Amos is addressing the nobility here or simply quoting some of their own words. But the main point is clear. They were placing false security in power politics in the domination achieved by Jeroboam II and by Uzziah. And yet, as our Australian politicians continue to remind us and to demonstrate so well, such political success can be very short-lived. That seems to be what Amos is alluding to here. Israel was blinded by their political gains, by their current domination. As Amos puts it in verse 13, they were rejoicing in the conquest of Lodabar, literally meaning nothing. They were boasting that they had overthrown Carnaim, double horns, superpowers, if you like, by their own strength. As Christian leaders, we can so easily succumb to the same mindset, measuring success by the size of our church, 
or by the strength and influence of our denomination. As one writer puts it, we all too easily fall into the mindset illustrated by the Guide to Good Churches, where churches like hotels are awarded stars and judged by everything except that one crucial thing that cannot be judged by us, the condition of people's hearts before God. He goes on to say, we're so easily seduced by our own relative success into imagining God must be rather pleased with us. Such was the mistake of those that Amos addresses. And they were lulled into such complacency, not only by their political success, but also by their material prosperity. We see this in verses 3 to 7. Like Nero, these people were fiddling while Rome burned. While the nation was going to spiritual rack and ruin, they indulged themselves in idle pleasures. They pushed away or scoffed at the notion that disaster was near, yet they promoted the conditions that absolutely guaranteed it. Here they were enjoying the good life, as it were, reclining on their extravagant couches, indulging in the very best of fine dining, entertaining themselves with a little music, maybe even composing some new songs, but quite oblivious to the danger that the nation faced. Instead of making music like David, these people needed a champion like David, someone to rescue them from the ensuing judgment and disaster. Yet they were so blinded by their cozy lifestyles, they failed to see the realities of the situation that confronted them that they and their nation were doomed. This foremost nation, verse 1, would indeed be the first, the first to go into exile, verse 7. This indulgent lifestyle would come to a very abrupt end. Israel's fortresses, verse 8, would be no defense against God's sworn wrath and fury. The only survivors, verses 9 to 10, would be the undertakers, who themselves would be too terrified to invoke God's name even in the context of lament. (coughs) No house or household would remain intact, verse 11. No region would escape the instrument of God's judgment. Neither their strength nor their prosperity would be able to save these people on the day of God's wrath. So they'd fail to set store by the things that really mattered. Indeed, as Amos points out in verse 12, they'd insanely turn things on their head. Do horses run on rocky crags? Does one plough there with oxen? No, of course, that that doesn't happen. That idea is ludicrous. And yet that's precisely what Israel has done. But you, says Amos, you've turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. They'd failed to follow God's express commands. Instead, they tried to palm God off with a show of religious piety and devotion. They'd placed their confidence in all the wrong things. They'd fail to do what God required of them. That is, as Micah puts it so well, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly or circumspectly with their God. And all too easily, if we're honest, all too easily we can fall into the same trap ourselves. But of this we must be careful, lest we fall into the same condemnation. Back when I was an undergraduate student, we used to have some lively discussions. Well, arguments might be a more accurate term. While my theological college was well known for its reformed and amillennial stance, the student body reflected the whole gamut, the whole range of eschatological opinion. 
And so you can, you can appreciate why our debates over last things got a little bit heated sometimes. But the one thing about the second coming that every one of us took for granted was this, that this day held no terror for us. This was not an event that we anticipated with any sense of foreboding. On that, we were all agreed. But perhaps such an assumption was a little misguided. After all, some of those who engaged back then in those debates, they're no longer working with God today. Just as several who have studied here in the last two decades have made shipwreck of their faith to die Jesus altogether since they left here. So in view of that and the propensity that churches and individuals have to imitate the sins of Israel, I suspect that we should probably be a lot more guarded and certainly a little less blasé about the coming day of the Lord, a day which the New Testament makes very clear will also have its fair share of surprises. Which is why, of course, we're, we're urged to be ready, to live holy and godly lives as we look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. God grant that we all do so, not just for our eternal good, but for his eternal glory. Amen.